Let's go to David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. And we're going to talk a bit more about how long it has been since we've had a federal budget. David, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, no problem. And uh, running a little late today because question period is just wrapping up on the House of Commons. And on Wednesdays, the Prime Minister generally takes all the questions. So an hour of uh, Trudeau swatting it back and forth to the opposition. And, you know, one of the issues that's come up over the last, you know, few weeks, well, more than a few weeks, since since we started spending billions and billions of dollars on our Canada's response to the pandemic, is some sort of plan to return us to normalcy. We're in an emergency. I think everybody knows extraordinary spending is required. But there are people, people who lend Canada money, for example, who do want to see some sort of commitment to the good fiscal reputation that Canada has earned since, let's say, you know, the, the mid-90s when the Martin Critchen government uh, wrestled the, the budget. And so I, I asked that we haven't had a budget this year. We haven't had a budget in this fiscal year. Uh, we haven't had, had a budget since the last federal election, if you can believe that. It's been a long time since we had a budget. So I asked the researchers at the Library of Parliament to crunch some numbers Look back since 1867, find out what's the longest we've ever had without a budget. And here's the answer, Jill. Uh, Next Friday, not this Friday, next Friday, the Trudeau government will set a record for the longest stretch in Canadian history in which an elected parliament has not had a budget presented to it. So that'll be 316 days as of next Friday. That eclipses a record set by the Kretschan government, believe it or not, back in 2001, um, of Parliament not having a budget. Uh, it'll be sometime in the towards the new year when the Trudeau government will set the all-time record in between budgets, because we have not had a budget since March 2019. Hmm. Budgets, as I know you know, are important documents for a government to say, okay, here's our economic plan, here's our fiscal plan, here's where we think we're at, here's where we think we're going, and they provide a good tool, an excellent tool, an indispensable tool for parliamentarians, for Canadians to say, okay, well, we've had a pandemic, and you want to spend X billions of dollars on this? Good, let's look at that in the context of your overall spending and taxation plan. And again, uh, we're about to hit a record for Parliament not having a budget believe it or not. And is there any indication on when we might have one? No. Um, I've asked the current finance minister, Christopher Freeland, a couple of times, and I've even tried to just say, do you think we should have a budget? Like, just tell me, is a budget important to you? And all she'll say is, all Christopher Freeland will say is, the throne speech talked about having a fiscal update. Of course, that's kind of ignoring the point. You can't really update something that doesn't exist because we don't have a budget for this year. So you can't update a non-existent budget. We asked uh, her predecessor, Bill Morneau, why not a budget? And he said, oh, it's too hard to forecast. You know, we don't, you know, it's all over the place. Um, I talked to a former parliamentary budget officer, Kevin Page. I've talked to others. Yes, it's difficult to forecast, but it's not impossible. There's different ways to do it. And you should be able to do it. In fact, Page's point is, you make plans like a budget precisely for times of uncertainty, all the more reason to have a budget in times of uncertainty so that Canadians and parliamentarians get a sense of where your priorities are, what, if any, fiscal anchors you might have. And we have none of those at this point in time. And I don't think we're going to get it at all this year. We're going to go through the entire fiscal year, which ends, uh, ends in March, 
without a budget. It is a bizarre argument when you think about it. And if you were comparing it to, say, to your own household, uh, exactly Mm -hmm. that same what Kevin Page is saying. If you have uncertainty and you're not sure what the future holds, that is the time you do a budget and try and figure it out. Yeah, the way the parliament, the way the budget cycle works in any legislature in the country is you start with a budget usually uh, just before the beginning of the next fiscal year. And then over the year, you can adjust that budget. You have things called estimates, which is the parliamentary turn for here's my spending plan. Uh, you have various motions for taxation. You have a fiscal update halfway through the year to say, okay, let's tinker with the plan. There's, and you can even introduce a second budget if you wanted to. In fact, we had that uh, back in 2000, I'm going to get the date right here, 2008, when the Harper government was defeated on its first budget by Stefan Dion and the Liberals. And then the Harper government went on to win in 2008 and came back and presented a a second budget. Uh, so you can have two budgets in a year. There's nothing wrong against that. But here's also the other interesting thing, Jill. There is no legal obligation for a government to present a budget. It's only done by convention, but there's no legal obligation to do so. And, you know, I talked to a professor of Canadian, uh, a Canadian political development history. We've been presenting Canadian legislatures have seen budgets going back to the 1840s pretty much every year with you know maybe one exception and that is because it's a convention that this is this is the way parliaments uh, hold governments to account is over spending plans particularly minority parliaments like the current one all right. Well, well, I'm glad you're asking the questions, even though uh, not getting a lot of solid answers. No answers, <laughs> no no. answers for that matter. But uh, thanks for asking that. We'll continue to follow along and see what happens here. David, great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Cheers. That's David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. I know a lot of people are still hesitant when it comes to flying airlines still hurting financially because of the pandemic. But Air Canada says it has come up with an alternative to the required 14-day quarantine for anybody entering the country from another country. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Claire Newell, President and Founder of Travel Best Bets. Good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. You know, there's been a lot of talk, um, not just by Air Canada. Air Canada is bringing it forward because for the past month, since September the 3rd, they've been doing voluntary tests in Toronto with um, COVID-19 tests for people who were flying into Toronto Pearson Airport. And they did a test at the airport, any of the volunteers who wanted to do this, and then they were sent home with two additional test kits. And they tested 15,000 passengers and found that more than 99% were negative. And so they really strongly believe that there is a safe alternative to the 14-day quarantine. So basically saying that once people arrive, that they get uh, a test. And then if they're negative, that they can go about their their life without having to quarantine. But this isn't new. This Actually, this week has just been filled with um, with uh, news in the travel industry about um, people wanting the use of rapid tests. And I think while we live alongside this um, this pandemic and, and this virus, you know, the, the real the reality of a widespread distribution of a vaccine is a long way off. But the as you mentioned at the top, the, the travel industry is hurting. I just Air Canada and WestJet alone have already lost. There's been 30,000 lost jobs here in Canada already. And last week they came out with a, a number of, that they're losing 15 million dollars a day. <laughs> like it's just insane. Um, so uh, just yesterday, 
Cruise Line International Association. They are the um, organization that represents uh, over 95% of the, or the ships that carry 95% of the world's cruises. I mean, that's an industry that has just been devastated by coronavirus. And they said that they are going to start for any ships carrying 20, 250 passengers or more, that they will be tested um, before going on board, which they had to do. I mean, that's just kind of a gimme. And airports around the world doing the same thing, talking about the fact that now, you know, in London, Istanbul, Hong Kong, um, Singapore, Frankfurt Airport is probably the biggest example. They actually have stations at airports that are administering administering (laughs) tests. Um, Lufthansa is actually capable of doing 20,000 tests a day. Um, Tampa Airport opened their testing facility October 1st. Miami is opening November. Like, just, it's, the really, I can't, like the worldwide push, not just by Air Canada, um, but it's very interesting moving forward. But I do believe that the only safe way to open up travel is going to be with the use of these rapid tests. Uh, so how would it work then if you look at, uh, like you mentioned, where they were testing this in Toronto? So a, a test when you landed and then you're sent home with two additional test kits. Are you sent home then, even if it's negative, to isolate or monitor or you can go about your, your daily life and then you just have to keep doing the tests? Well, what they're saying is that travelers that are returning to Canada right now, everyone had to quarantine for 14 days from the date of arrival. That's obviously mandated by the Canadian government. And that when that's going to be lifted, um, we don't know. And it's whether you have symptoms or not. So Air Canada couldn't have their passengers have one of these tests. And if they test negative, just go about their day. Um, but the reality is, is I think what, what they're looking for is the results were that they ha- people had the test at the airport and they were they were 99% negative and then the two follow-up tests also showed that they were negative so they 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 were just wanting to make sure that the results were incorrect of from that first test so that they could present this to the government that was accurate and science-based saying that moving forward look we wouldn't have to take three tests once we right. got back we would just do one. And, you know, I don't know whether um, the Canadian government will or any governments will say, you know, no 14 day quarantine. Um, they might say 48 hours. And if you have a test result that comes back negative, then you're free to, to go about. So what's happening in the likes of, say, um, Germany, where the tests are so widely administered by Lufthansa at the Frankfurt airport and the Munich airport, you can actually get your test results. It comes literally within a couple of hours and it comes in the form of a QR code sent to your phone. And then wherever you happen to be traveling or if you're asked, you can then show that you have the negative test and then go about your travels. Which could be a huge game changer, really, when we're talking about going from exactly the the required quarantine to having that negative test. That's right. The the, the reality is, I think, that people now realize that um, it's community outbreaks um, that are really spreading this. Travel, you, you want to, of course, protect Canadian citizens and you want to protect anywhere that you happen to be traveling. If You, you don't want to be, be spreading it through travel. But um, I think the use of these rapid tests, along with everything else, right? Wearing of your mask, social distancing, washing your hands frequently, wherever you happen to be going, I think is going to be the the way forward where people will feel, well, more, more confident. I mean, there's no question. The public are skittish. 
they're they're worried about travel. They don't want to infect anybody. They don't want to pick it up when they're traveling. Um, but you know, I think a lot of people would like to be able to start to travel in a safe way. And this is what I think is the game changer moving forward. There's been a lot of talk about this. The problem, though, Jill, is that what we're seeing, an, ex- an example of this would be Hawaii. We have been told that Hawaii is opening up as of October 15th and that if you show a negative COVID-19 test, that you will be allowed to forego the um, the quarantine. has to be within 72 hours of you actually arriving in Hawaii. But for Canadians, there's no test that's administered here in Canada yet that is approved by the Hawaiian government. Hmm. So making sure that there is a standardized list around the world of tests that are acceptable is going to be the next key because, you know, we're still trying to get the answers. There's airlines that are now offering that test for anyone holding a ticket to Hawaii in the in the U.S., like Seattle. Alaska Airlines is testing people in Seattle. Um, American Airlines in Dallas, United in San Francisco. We're just trying to still get the answer, and it's tough to get whether Canadians can then fly to the U.S. where they don't need to quarantine, get that test, and then continue on to Hawaii. But that's the problem, is just getting um, something that's consistent worldwide that is acceptable. And it would still be the scenario, too, that even if you did that, went to Hawaii, had some semblance of a normal vacation, you would still have to do the 14-day quarantine when you got back. You've got it. Until a test can be administered to forego that, the Canadian government, I don't think, is going to change anything. They they haven't changed a thing since March um, in the way of anything with borders. And so... You know, other parts of the world um, have have slowly and safely opened up, um, but obviously they want to get it right. So right now, everyone who comes back into Canada from travel from anywhere um, has to quarantine for 14 days. And we have very strict rules on who can even come in. It's still only, you know, family, students, um, essential workers. Uh, There's just a very, very small list. And as far as you know, have you heard, I know we uh, get the updates uh, on the CDC website that shows the domestic flights and in the international flights that have had COVID cases. But as far mm-hmm. as you know, have we heard of any transmission? No, not to, to, to my knowledge. They are very open about how many cases they, they have, like from ex- exposure a point of view, but there have been no cases so far that have been reported of transmission. And I think it's because of the unique environment. You've got everybody sitting. There's been there very little um, movement or touching of surfaces. There's um, They're handing out sanitizing wipes and y- everyone's wearing a mask. So it's, um, it's very, very restricted and it has been for a long time. Um, at WestJet, I did see some, some some numbers that they had. I think they were like almost seventeen thousand flights and only two hundred cases of exposure, with zero cases of transmission on board. All right. Well, we'll see what happens uh, next, and uh, if there is any changing to the rules. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to talk with you. You too. Thanks, Jill. That is Claire Newell, president and founder of Travel Best Bet. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson says six single-use plastic items that are not easily recycled and have more environmentally friendly alternatives will be the first that will be part of Canada's new single-use plastic ban. He is also acknowledging that things such as hard-to-recycle coffee cup lids are not on the ban list at this point, but likely will be soon. That product is something that I think 
can be done in a manner that actually is recyclable. And that's part of the work that we are going to need to do with industry in terms of enhancing product design to ensure the recyclability of some of these products. So that first list of plastics being banned by the end of next year, that includes things such as straws, the six-pack, the rings on a six-pack, stir sticks, food containers, and such. Let's bring in Bob Masterson, CEO of the Chemistry Industry Association of Canada. Bob, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Uh, what is your response to uh, the Canadian government to bringing in this national ban on single-use plastic items? Oh, well, you know, there's, it's a complex uh, issue, uh, some complex reactions. But let me pick up on one thing uh, the minister said. Uh, you know, this is one of the frustrations here. Uh, what is the criteria that this list is comprised of? It seems very arbitrary. There's no work to be done to make coffee cup lids recyclable. They're number four plastics. They're so easy to recycle. They're readily recycled in British Columbia every day. The challenge is when you get into smaller municipalities and other jurisdictions other than BC where they don't have a functioning recycling system. That's not about the product design. That's everything to do with making the recycling system work. Our view is let's put our energy into making the recycling system work rather than banning products like plastic bags and like coffee cup lids that are easily and routinely recycled. Uh, so where is the, the breakdown then with, on the one hand, the government saying we need to ban these items because they're ending up at the landfill too much, to your industry saying no, that needs to be more of a cyclical system? Well, I think that's the good news in today's announcement. I, th- I think we have seen a, a change in the the messaging from the federal government, especially post-COVID or as we're in the middle of COVID, there's a better appreciation for the role of plastics in the economy and in society. And so we're talking more about, well, that's how do we manage those things that we're having challenges with, and let's focus on building a circular economy for plastics. So you have all the provinces. Alberta made major announcements yesterday. You have all the provinces committed to making a circular economy for plastics. You have industry that's in line and supports it, and now the federal government's in line. So that's all the positive news. You know, we look at British Columbia, and today with the system you have through Recycle BC, which is an industry-paid recycling system of extended producer responsibility, you are recycling about 45% of the plastic packaging that comes into the province every day, and you have aspirations to get that significantly higher. Just think about that number in BC, 45%, when I tell you that the Canadian average is about 9%. How bad is the rest of the country doing if the average is 9% in an important economy like BC is 45? There are some simple things we can all do to make recycling work better, as is the case in BC, and to dramatically improve the post-consumer recovery of uh, plastic packaging. But isn't that the issue there as well, that even if, uh, so in BC, if we're leaders in this, it's still less than half of the plastics being recycled? Well, that's today. But again, if you look at where where BC was before, the new system that came into place only in 2014 has made significant improvements. And the the proposal that's now under consideration is to drive that number up to 75% in the coming years. And frankly, that's the approach we would much prefer the federal government take. Industry must design things that can be recycled and the systems must be built and operated so that the things can be recovered and recycled. And so certainly... The role of governments has set a really clear message. There is a date coming where if you don't design things for recyclability and you don't actually recover and recycle them, then we're going to ban them. And that, that's a process. That's, that's some years out. 
uh, but it starts today. Uh, arbitrarily banning products that are used routinely in commerce, uh, we don't understand the basis for that. What is the criteria that are used for the decisions today? Another good example would be polystyrene takeout containers, and certainly uh, those are even more ubiquitous as we're all encouraged to keep away from in-room in dining, especially as we hate, head to this uh, difficult winter with COVID. They are a routinely used product that provides great value to society. The same federal government that wants to ban those today has been investing in companies to help them uh, build the technologies that can recycle those more efficiently at a lower cost. They can be recycled today. They are recycled in British Columbia. You can put your food containers back into the system. But it is a co- it, they were correct. It is a costly, difficult to recycle material, but it can be done. And the goal is to make it easier and less costly to recycle, not to ban the material that Canadians need every day. What about the issue of plastic shopping bags? Because those seem to have become the symbol of plastic items that we've had different cities try and ban them, municipalities try and Mm -hmm. ban them. We've seen court cases with the the Mm -hmm. Plastic Bag Association going to court to keep them. Yeah, well, yes, it's true. And we've also seen a significant uptake in plastic bags through through COVID, Uh, you know, can you bring your own bag or do you use what's in the store? Uh, some of us that have become accustomed to using the plastic bags have also been really frustrated by the lack of functionality of paper bags. Are they a true substitute? Not clear. Here's the thing, though. You know, the European Union did ban plastic bags, but that's the European Union. Every one of the individual nation states, every 28 of them, has a different definition of what a plastic bag is. And we see the same thing across Canada. So even when you have a municipality like Montreal that says we've banned plastic bags, they've actually only banned a plastic bag of a certain thickness. If it's thick enough, it can be used many times over and meet consumer needs while keeping those small flimsy ones that blow around in the environment uh, out of out of commerce. So, you know, we don't know where the federal government's going with this, and we would encourage them to look at examples like the city of Montreal that has uh, got the right balance on this. But at this point, we don't know where they will take it. Uh, so do you think it is something that should be a national rule, or is it something that should be left up to municipalities and cities? <laughs> well, I... I would say uh, it shouldn't be a national rule if it's done on an arbitrary basis without strong scientific basis. Uh, We don't want the government banning things just because they think it's a good idea. We want it to be done because there's a good basis. And our our view is they haven't met that test in this example. Uh, Should, again, should the government set regulations on uh, the requirement for products to be designed to be recycled? Yes. Should the federal government uh, work with the provinces and ensure that we have a coast-to-coast system like in the province of British Columbia where industry pays for the packaging it puts into the economy? Absolutely, yes. And do we have to move to a day where products like your laundry detergent container or your shampoo container will contain a certain specification of recycled material? Absolutely, yes. We agree with all those things, but we do take issue with the arbitrary nature of how the government is going about these bans. All right. The minister himself said this is, you're, you're talking about less than 1% of the flow of plastic materials. So if the problem is plastic waste broadly, what do we get out of addressing in this arbitrary manner less than 1%? And, and you know, I would also add, make no mistake, there are, this is, people like to beat up on big business and, you know, the big plastic producers, this will represent less than 1% of their market share. It's not going to harm them, but there are 1,800 small plastic companies in Canada, many of them around Vancouver, many of them family-owned, 
all with less than 100 employees. Some of them, if what they make are plastic bags or straws, uh, they've been given notice today that they're likely to be out of business in a year. So we're in an economic crisis. People have a mental health challenge with COVID, and the government is telling those workers, uh, get ready, you're going to be out of a job. And we've asked the government, as they prepared for this announcement for almost two years now, be sure to talk about what you're going to do to help transition those workers uh, who are no longer going to have a job. And we've heard nothing about that today, and we do hope in the weeks and months to come that the government will also focus on what they plan to do to help with the transition of those workers. All right. Uh, Bob Masterson, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Thank you so much, though, for joining us. appreciate your time. We thank you. All right. Have a nice day. You too. Bob Masterson is the CEO of the Chemistry Industry Association of Canada. We are talking about the federal government's plan to ban single-use plastics by the end of 2021. The first items on the list, things like straws, takeout containers, plastic shopping bags, the rings that you see around six-pack of beer and getting reaction to that. We were just chatting with the Chemistry Industry Association of Canada and now we are joined by the Mayor of Victoria, Lisa Helps. Mayor Helps, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, We wanted to talk to you today because uh, I remembered uh, Victoria's bringing in the ban on plastic bags. Uh, I think it was back in 2017. It ended up in the courts. What was it like for Victoria to try and take the lead on that? Uh, It was very challenging, as it is for cities uh, across the country and around the world, to take the lead on issues that our community thinks are important, our communities think are important, uh, whether it's sustainability or resilience or climate change or waste management, uh, because cities clearly, as we found out through this uh, process, don't have adequate authorities to uh, to ban things like plastic bags. And we did ban ban them in 2017, and, and now, you know, It's great. The federal announcement today is great. It is really fantastic. Um, But we were four years ahead. And so what happens when cities are four years ahead of senior levels of government but don't have the authority to do the right thing? Where is the bag ban now as far as in Victoria? Well, thankfully, just before they called an election, the provincial government gave us permission uh, to enact our bylaw along with four other municipalities in British Columbia. Uh, So now our bylaw will come back into effect. Uh, again, you know, having to get provincial uh, permission to do something that is just common sense, particularly as we're facing a climate uh, crisis and a waste, uh, waste is part of that, uh, was a bit frustrating to be sure. So uh, our, our bylaw is back uh, after, um, you know, making its way uh, through the court system. Uh, so it must have been, I mean, a lot of time and money spent fighting this. Time and energy. I mean, we've got a very, very good in-house uh, solicitor, so we didn't uh, we didn't have to pay for legal expenses other than you know the incidental ones of, that, that come with any any court uh, action. Um, but it, uh, more than more than that, you know, we in Victoria alone uh, have a million plastic bags going into the landfill every year, one million. And so with all this dilly-dallying and back and forth with the courts and waiting for senior levels of government, the biggest impact is waste. The biggest impact are plastic bags ending up not only in our landfill, but in our oceans. Uh, That's not okay. And so, you know, the federal government's announcement today is great. Uh, 2021 is next year, uh, but hopefully these kinds of changes won't take so long in the future. What do you say to industry that makes the argument that even the list of six items that was announced today is about 1% of the plastics that are produced and that we should be looking more at cyclical recycling rather than banning things that people use every day? 
What I would say to the industry is industry's job is to innovate. Uh, governments regulate and in industry responds. There are a multitude of, uh, you know, and I'm not a chemist, uh, but from, from the little research that I've done, there are, uh, you know, items that can be made uh, of things that are uh, biodegradable, um, truly biodegradable that return back to the earth. So, I mean, industry is going to need to innovate in response to these regulations. And with innovation comes new jobs, comes new technology. So I would say to industry, let's, you know, sees this as an opportunity to respond to the government's very uh, solid regulations. And, and I would say if it's 1% of the uh, plastic waste stream, then this is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, as more things are phased out, industry is going to be able to respond, be innovative, create jobs, and come up with solutions for the 21st century, because that's where we're at. Uh, but couldn't part of the innovation be recycling the plastics that are being produced? Uh, or, or do you think it needs to be going in that other direction, making things that are biodegradable? You know, just going back to elementary school, the hierarchy is reduce, reuse, recycle. Uh, So uh, that's the answer. We need to reduce the production of single-use plastics and plastics altogether because that still is part of the extractive industry. Uh, We need to reduce and then reuse and then recycle. And and I think the government's, uh, the federal government's um, announcement today is, is pointing us in that new direction. Uh, Do you think, though, that because of the pandemic, it really did bring back as far as people that would never, I think, have thought about using plastic shopping bags or or disposable cups? Uh, Suddenly everybody was doing that again for safety and because of this pandemic. Uh, Does it show that we're ready to to throw those, uh, the reduce, reuse, recycle rules uh, away? Uh, I think we have to. Um, You know, the pandemic is uh, one form of disruption, uh, and it's been very disruptive, and it still continues to be very disruptive to to many people. Um, The uh, unknown uh, disruption that's going to come from climate change is, is, you know, going to be much, much, much worse than what we're experiencing right now. So we have no choice but to adapt. And again, I have so much confidence in the private sector, in the innovation sector to come up with solutions that are going to be pandemic friendly and not single use. What does that look like? We don't know right now. Uh, and that's why we're going to you know, rely on innovation in the private sector to de- develop uh, and determine some of those things. Uh, and, and one final question. What did you learn or were you surprised at all by the power of industry when trying to do something which seems, if the people want it, it seems like it should be a pretty simple thing to ban a plastic bag? Well, before we put the bylaw in place, I'm not sure uh, that there was any such thing as the Plastic Bag Association of Canada. Uh, I could be wrong, um, but... Uh, you know, industry certainly got organized. And and I think, you know, I have got so much time and respect for private industry because they're the job creators. They're the ones that are going to really create the future we need. Um, And so, yeah, it was hard to kind of quote unquote fight big industry. But now it's time to turn that page uh, and get on the same page going forward with what the federal government's told us all today, industry and local government alike. All right. Mayor Helps, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Have a good afternoon. That is Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria. Shifting gears a little bit right now, talking about the blueberry industry in this province. We grow a lot of blueberries in BC, and a lot of those berries are exported. But there are some concerns about the industry. And joining me to talk a bit more about that is Anju Gill, executive director of the BC Blueberry Council. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Uh, What are the concerns right now when it comes to tariffs and possible tariffs for the industry? 
You know, it's it's actually really too early to say exactly what that could like uh, look like. But I think the main concern is is just the the global uh, safeguard investigation that's being headed by the USITC. So just preparing and preparing to defend the BC um, industry, not only BC industry. In fact, it's a it's a Canadian um, case. Um, that involves not only Canada, but obviously all the uh, the importing countries into the U.S. And how big of a client or a customer is the United States when it comes to exporting blueberries from Canada? You know, we've actually had a very close or have a very close working relation with, uh, relationship with the B.C. Um, or not the B.C., sorry, U.S. Um, industry. Um, we have, uh, we're a founding member of the North American Blueberry Council and work very closely with, um, with the industry in terms of research, promotions, and, and just the overall development of the industry. In terms of trade, um, uh, out of the, the, the production, about 70% uh, percent is uh, exported. And majority of that 70%, I would say anywhere between 65 to 68% is, it goes to the U.S. So it is an important market for us, but it's somewhat uh, mutually beneficial because uh, we also import blueberries from the U.S. And so with the, the International Trade Commission uh, investigation then, like you said, too early to say at this point, but that's got to be causing concerns for the growers, just the fact that it's being discussed. Um, I think in terms of um, it, we, yes, I mean, it could, but like I said, it's difficult to know what those concerns could be, you know, until we have a little bit of better understanding of the case. In terms of what we we understand, uh, Canada has a strong case. We have um, mutual trade with the U.S., um, you know, could this um, end up in in um, in import uh, uh, tariffs or import quotas? Possibly, but at this point, it is really too early to say. And uh, you touched on this as well with kind of that mutual uh, relationship with the United States. In that, would you classify that or, or say that 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 it's a good relationship between the two countries when it comes to blueberries? We've had a good relationship uh, in, in in terms of uh, having imports and exports uh, mutually benefit, um, in, in, and it's been there for decades. So this is something, obviously, I, I, the, the trade action is a concern, and uh, we just hope that uh, we continue this relationship without any disruptions. And for blueberries specifically, because if I'm understanding it correctly, this is this is the investigation takes a look at what the imports, uh, the 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 um, what impact they have on all mm-hmm. U.S. farmers. No, it's not just mm-hmm. blueberry farmers. So we're talking about about all all domestic products in Canada, uh, fruits and vegetables that are that are exported to the states. I'm not uh, too familiar with other commodities that are, that are, I believe, bell peppers and strawberries and raspberries. There is some sort of investigation on those as well, but it's my understanding is it's not global safeguard, uh, 201 global safeguard that the blueberries um, are facing. There's um, just, and Jill, just to clarify what this investigation is, there's actually 
uh, three phases to the investigation. The first phase is to um, to see if there is surge of blueberries in the last five years in the U.S. If there is surge, are those imports causing um, uh, uh, injury to the U.S. growers? If so, if that is confirmed, then the second phase is the trade remedies. That's where we'll learn if there will be any um, tariffs or um, import quotas. The third phase is where the report, the recommendations go to the U.S. president uh, working with the USTR and uh, the, the Commerce Department. Uh, that's the point where, you know, whether they will impose those recommendations or not, if there are any recommendations. Right. So it does seem, uh, yeah, that we're kind of kind of looking at this worst case scenario when really mm-hmm. that, that's uh, that's uh, we're nowhere near kind of uh, the decision at this point. Exactly. Yes. Uh, is there concern, though, I would imagine that that if we did see that happen, it would result mm-hmm. in higher prices? It could happen. I mean, that uh, higher prices, uh, I would think the impact would be uh, on the U.S. consumer. Um, as the, With the imports, there will be some adjustment um, within the uh, supply chain. Could that impact the consumer um, in terms of prices? Possibly. Um, and But uh, we just have to wait and see. All right. Uh, Anju Gill, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Anju Gill is the executive director of the BC Blueberry Council. Well, I know a lot of people are looking forward to the upcoming Thanksgiving Day weekend, even though during COVID-19, for a lot of people, it looks different if there's going to be any celebration at all. There is another holiday, though, that you might not even know about. Granted, it's kind of one of those made-up holidays, but I think it's going to get a pretty good amount of buy-in. Today is Canadian Beer Day. And to talk more about that, we are joined by our show contributor, John Jang. Good afternoon, Jill. And if you'll pardon me for just a moment here. Yeah, there we go. Happy Canadian Beer Day, a day that unites all of us Canadians from coast to coast to coast as we help out the industry by doing our part, which is, of course, drinking Canadian beer. But as you can expect, things are different this year with COVID-19. So I spoke with Dana Miller. She's the Director of Communications and Engagement with Beer Canada on how things have changed here in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. 2020 has definitely been a difficult year for sure. And I think we'd be remiss to not acknowledge that. So certainly Canadian Beer Day this year has has been adjusted. Last year, we in 2019, we had a, an, an event and that was the plan this year. So, you know, this year we're, we're really meeting the participation of the, you know, general public to ensure the Canadian beer industry and the people and business connected to it. So the farmers, malsters, bottle manufacturers, drivers, warehouse workers, servers, and restaurant owners um, are recognized for their really hard work and for the great industry and their contributions to our economy. Ah, the beer economy arguably the best economy. So I asked Dana, in terms of economic impact, just how much are we talking about here in dollars and cents? Yeah, absolutely. So beer contributes $13.6 billion to Canada's GDP annually. So it is certainly a huge contributor um, to our economy. And I, I think a lot of people just may not realize that because there's a lot of 
you know, behind the scenes work and as we already mentioned, different sectors that contribute to to beer and um, yeah, so it's quite a, a, a large figure. But as times have changed, so too have breweries and distilleries across the country. In fact, your favorite beer maker could also be looking out for your safety by producing their very own hand sanitizers. Oh yeah, hand sanitizer. They've held, you know, bottle drives, you know, made donations to charities. They've they've adjusted their operations to make sure that they're still able to serve their local communities just with pickup and and delivery options. So absolutely they've they've definitely gone above and beyond in terms of, you know, really looking out for their local communities and ensuring that we're still able to enjoy the beer that we all love. But here's one alarming development. There is now a shortage of aluminum cans across the country. Now, if you prefer bottled beer, you know, maybe that's not such a big deal to you. But for those that prefer the six-packs, those canned beers, the iconic look, well, there's a growing concern that there might not be enough for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. There has been a shortage of aluminum cans uh, throughout North America in the last uh, couple of months. Um, and you know, it's, it's definitely been reported by, by breweries and, and that has definitely been flagged. I think at this point, it's not gotten to a, an extreme measure, measure, pardon me. Um, but definitely the aluminum beverage can, um, has, has seen a demand, uh, for cans, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, for sure. Might be something to keep in mind for the next time you're at the liquor store. Maybe just grab a couple more tall boys just in case. Now, one thing that has definitely changed for Beer Day this year is simply how we're consuming it. There's a lot of people now unable to socialize at the bar or the pub like they used to. And I know personally that my friends and I will drink together on a Zoom call, which really just means we're drinking by ourselves while staring at our phones. But obviously, it's a big difference from how we might have celebrated Beer Day from just a year ago. You know, I've, I've definitely, I see pictures, you know, sent to me and just being shared online of people, you know, sitting in their backyard, but they're like 20 feet apart, making sure that everyone's safe. And, and same thing, like on, on FaceTime or on Zoom, just enjoying a cold beer or, if you're, you know, with your immediate family or like kind of what we mentioned before, just going to go quickly pick something up to enjoy at home. So it's definitely shifted over the past few months, but we hope that everyone still enjoys today and enjoys Canadian Beer Day and supports, you know, their favorite their favorite brewery, their favorite beer brand, and just you know hops over to their local brewery or retailer to, to you know support the industry. Well, look at that! Doing your part and helping out the industry today is as easy as cracking open a cold one. But always remember: drink responsibly and make good choices. And uh, John, you were uh, talking about drinking on Zoom. I think that's become a habit or perhaps a pastime (laughs) for people. There's also an online beer festival happening. Yeah, that's right. Well, today is Canadian Beer Day, right? That's what we talked about. So in the North Shore, they have the Enjoy Craft Beer Festival going online as a result of COVID-19. You can check in at 5 o'clock tonight through their website. That's enjoycraft.ca. And they'll be showing a short video featuring the breweries and the brewmasters who actually made the beers for the festival tonight. And one more thing, if you go to that website, you can actually buy a beer box. It comes with nine different craft beers that will be delivered to you. And proceeds from that sale actually go towards supporting the same John Ambulance of British Columbia. So you're helping out two different uh, industries at once. Nice. I always get the advent calendar of the beer calendar. Oh, yeah. 
I'm hoping they're doing that again this year. I can't see why they wouldn't do that because of COVID, but it's changed so many things. Uh, what about uh, Canadian Beer Awards? Are these a thing? Yeah, definitely. In fact, uh, it was just held the 2020 version two weeks ago, and BC, always a powerhouse when it comes to Canadian beer and craft beer, lots of winners. So just to name a few of the uh, the gold place finishers uh, in BC, Strange Fellows Brewing, they got gold for the American style Brett beer, their Hedgerow, uh, another beer company, that's the name, another beer company got gold uh, with their Deep Thoughts Triple IPA. Phillips Brewing, one of my personal favorites, they got the gold for Session India Pale Ale, what they called the Glitter Bomb Hazy Pale Ale. <laughs> and Strange Fellows Brewing, uh, they also got a gold for their Wheat Beer, which is a Belgian-style beer. So lots of different flavors. And of course, because it's beer day, you can sort of do your research and homework and look into which beers uh, have won awards here in BC. Did you say Glitter Bomb? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Phillips Brewing, Glitter Bomb. And it, uh, okay, first of all, it's delicious. <laughs> But the outside, like the the decoration on the can itself, it's got so much like vibrant color. There's, uh, of course, purple. There's a bit of green. There's some white. There's some silver. When you look at it, it looks like a glitter bomb and it tastes like one, too, which I don't even know if that makes sense. But that's the way they are marketing. it. <laughs> Interesting. I did see because, of course, all the pumpkin ales are out right now, too. Right. I saw one the other day that I think it was called the pumpkin milkshake ale. Oh, my. Which I couldn't tell if I thought it sounded really good or not. It could I, uh, go either way. I, I, you know what, Jill? For science, I will get us two, <laughs> and you and I, we can experiment on that one together. <laughs> all right. All in the name of science, of course. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. All right. Thanks, John. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You got it. Thank you, Jill. That is our show contributor, John Jang.